0: This Washington Post Live podcast is in partnership with AARP, empowering people to choose how they live as they age for more than 60 years. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom
1: to life on stage. Ursula Burns, the former CEO of Xerox, joins the Post to discuss the ways companies can help facilitate greater gender and ethnic diversity in the boardroom. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Francis Deed Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post. I'm delighted to welcome today Ursula Burns. She's the former CEO of the Xerox Corporation and currently a senior advisor to the global advisory company, Teneo. A very warm welcome back to Washington Post Live, Ursula.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. As you know, I'm in London, so it's good to be part of it (laughs) again
1: well, it's it's wonderful to be able to talk across the Atlantic so so easily. You have been a huge champion of gender and ethnic diversity in the corporate boardroom. and you say now you're going to make it a movement. Where do things stand among American corporations and and what needs to happen?
0: Well, the good news is that we are seeing change. Uh, it started and in gender diversity, um, and we see a pretty big positive move um, in that portion of the diversification of American business. This is both American business, but also global business. So we have diversity, uh, an increasing amount of diversity from a gender perspective, uh, particularly in the boardroom and to a large extent in the C-suite as well. We are nowhere near clo- close to solved yet, but but there are there is progress there. We still have a long way to go um, and racial diversity. Black and brown people are still very underrepresented, underrepresented in the boardroom and in the C-suite. And the good news there is that people are now starting to talk about it, not only me, businesses, businesses and business leaders, communities, um, even rating agencies and investment firms are starting to call for more diversity throughout the corporation in the C-suite, in the boardroom, in the supply chain, obviously in the entry level. So I say progress, but a long way to go still.
1: So for years you opposed quotas and now you've said that you believe they're necessary. What changed your mind and how do you implement quotas at a company?
0: Yeah, you know, this is a very difficult thing because I actually really opposed quotas for a long time. I thought that with uh, debt, with data that showed that corporations that were diverse performed as well and very often better than corporations that were not diverse better across the board and that with the with the availability of talent that we would see progress um, but we didn't quite honestly we didn't and a state like california and a country like the uk and, and the European Union in general, has started to put in um, quotas. So requirements for a certain type of representation on boards. It's amazing what happened when that happened. When that happened, we started to see more women on boards of California, California registered companies or more women on boards of European or UK companies. So it started to change my mind and said, hmm, maybe Um, without, if all we do is implore companies to try to do better, what we've seen historically, literally up to this point, that there's very, very little progress. Um, And so maybe it's time for quotas. I hate to say it, but I think uh, the, the, the response to lack of progress is that you have things imposed on you by other people. And to have governments or um, investment firms or whatever impose them on companies will likely drive the numbers up. I was hoping we wouldn't get here or there, but we are there.
1: And you're referring to a 2018 law in California, right? That California, that made right. this a mandate in in public companies.
0: Correct. And so what we're seeing in in California's in public companies um, incorporated in California, you see diversity, gender diversity for sure. And even in the UK where we, where the UK government called for diversity at board level, we see, we saw progress. I mean, when I say progress, I mean a step function improvement in um, the representation of women on these boards. So it seems like that's a way to drive the change. And that's, I think what we may need to do, what I think we need to do because the progress has been so slow to date um, in other sectors of the United States, in other states, Obviously, very slow, particularly on racial diversity. and that's the that's the place that I want to spend a little bit of time focusing on. And that's where the board Diversity action Alliance, uh, you know that's where it came from. That's where it was born from, from this idea that we didn't have enough um, diverse board members.
1: Well, before we look ahead to what you're doing with that with that uh, alliance, take me back to your time at Xerox. So two thousand and nine, you became CEO you look back and think you did enough to diversify in that company then how would you do it differently now
0: yeah i didn't do enough to diversify um i think we had we we made a lot of progress on the board even before i came on um as ceo on the board of xerox so we had a pretty diverse board um both african-american and um female diversity and that was That was pretty good. That was started before I came on board. And in my senior management team, I had some diversity, gender diversity for sure. And we had some racial diversity, but nowhere near as much as I thought I would be able to do or to get to. I mean, there's a lot of, I understand some of the gaps that we have. I understand how cultures of companies and hiring practices of companies and development plans in companies actually can limit the progress. We did a lot to actually speed that up, but I hadn't, But by the time I left, I hadn't gotten to the point where I, or to the place where I would have been like, totally proud of where Xerox ended up. But I think we made a lot of progress in Xerox.
1: And now you're asking this of companies, you're, you're creating this movement just as companies are coming out of the pandemic. Are you getting pushback? Do they see it as cumbersome? There's, many are struggling and this is another way they have to sort of change their whole philosophy.
0: Yeah, I'm interestingly enough in public companies not seeing a lot of pushback at all. This started because they asked the questions. <laughs> this wasn't the, this the, this move, the latest the latest movement started not because we said, "Oh, we're in the pandemic, why don't we why don't we just, you know, throw them another set of uh, tool uh, another set of actions that they have to implement." No, they this started because in the middle of the pandemic, in the, actually in the beginning of the pandemic, George Floyd was murdered by as you know, by police police people in in uh, Minnesota. And at that point, there was an uproar, not only in the U.S., but kind of around the world. I mean, I was in London at the time, and I had received by this time a number of calls from CEOs a- after George Floyd was murdered to talk to me about the what they were seeing, the movements in, in the public that they were seeing, marches, p- all peaceful, peaceful marches, I'm um, asking for change. And so the s- CEOs that called me and some of my um, colleagues who are African-American, they were called as well. The The answer, the question was very consistent. Something is different here. I think I'm doing enough, I think I understand it, but let me make sure and let me talk to you about it. So they reached out to, to people that they know that were African-American and obviously that we were colleagues in some way or the other. And what we found, what I asked them all was, okay, so thank you for calling me. It's really, really good. I love this conversation. I love the passion that we're starting to hear in your voice. But why are you calling me? Why are you not, um, you know, speaking to your African American people on your board or in your C-suite or in your company? And what we found pretty consistently was that they said that they didn't have any. <laughs> the reason why they weren't calling their African American board board member because they didn't have one. And out of this. Some of them did, obviously, but very many of them did not. So out of this simple um, set of back and forth, myself and a couple of other colleagues decided, you know, simple, not very uncomplicated request for all corporations in America, but around the world. You should have at least one black or brown person on your board. You should also have at least one woman on your board and we can keep going right but at least one black or brown person on your board and if you do that then basically you can start to sit in their seat in some ways you don't have to go far you don't have to reach very far to to have a conversation about their 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 ideas about how progress is happening their their voice their background their their input to, on how to make the company a better place And what better way to do it than to have part of the team have like a real personal sensitivity and involvement and ability to discuss a way to progress it. So that was the, the start of this. We did it with public companies first. Really easy. We thought that the data existed, that everybody knew, you know, that you can just kind of go on a website and type something in and say, okay, this is who has who has diversity on their board and who does not. Little did we know that the that the data is not um, as nicely curated or sitting in some place as you would think. There are lots of reasons why it's not only company issues, there are a lot of legal issues, a lot of you know identification issues, a lot of privacy issues, et cetera. But nonetheless, we are asking that companies diversify their boards. Our focus is at least one black or brown person on their board that we actually start to measure it report it and measure it we know that the best way to make progress is to get first transparency into what's actually happening that allows companies to start discussions in industries or sectors they can talk to each other they can talk to professionals professional organizations that can help them and on and on so can we first second first represent second can you please report and then third can you start to understand throughout the fabric of your company or your organization where diversity stands so in this not only at the board in the c-suite in your supply chain so your vendors who who are your bankers who are your consultants who are your your um your biggest supplier of whatever whatever you use electronics or bathroom products it could be simple to complicated Look at everything you do in your business. Look at how you hire, look at who you use, look at what you value and see whether or not you can step up your performance, your inspection, your expectations in this
1: diversity space. So you take me exactly to what I wanted to ask you about. Next week marks the one year anniversary of George Floyd's death. And immediately after that, we saw many, many companies and foundations and other groups Making statements, professing this commitment to diversity, and now you're talking about data. Do you have data year out that shows progress that's being made, or are you just hearing more conversations on the uh, on the sides of the companies?
0: It's a great question. It's a great question. Um, the answer is we are. We have we have not done a full match of or we. <laughs> the reason why we haven't is because we, as a small group of people, just myself and two or three other colleagues, this is not a um, you know, a, a staffed movement. We we didn't expect it to be, nor do we want it to be. We wanted companies, their customers, their communities to have the pressure put on them by their constituents, not by a group like myself or Gabby Salzberg or the Ford Foundation or whomever to be the people who are knocking on your door, say, do, do, do. What we want to start with is first companies actually looking at themselves and moving things up. But we're seeing, yes, that, from the time that we started a year ago to now there is absolutely prog- progress particularly in public companies by the way we also see it in the calls that we receive that all that ever, headhunters are currently receiving that all African American board members are receiving and i'm sure some majority board members as well when board seats are coming up it is a standard situation now a standard practice where where we'll have NOM and GOV committee members or CEOs call and say, do you have anyone with this kind of skill or that kind of skill who is diverse? Can you help us find other people? So I think that the movement in the public company sphere is definitely there. Still has to keep, you know, we can't take our foot off the pedal. We have to make this a movement, keep it being a movement, right, so the way that you do that is transparency and keep asking questions, visibility, 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 and discussion. In not yet public companies, it's an interesting challenge. So we started with public companies, it was easier. The next phase that the BDAA is going into, and we're just finishing this data so that we can release it very, very soon, just like we did the public company data, is that the performance of not yet public companies, so PE and VC-backed companies, is dismal. It's it's dismal. It is shockingly bad um, at how... Underverse the board members are, and the C-suite of the companies that are launched are. Uh, after they become public, for many reasons, they have to report <laughs> to governments, they have to answer questions, et cetera. There's a lot more transparency when you become public, they start to improve. So the next phase that we're working on is starting to engage PE and VC-backed pre-IPO companies, understand that data, and actually, do the same thing with the BDAA that we did um, for public companies, which is put it out there, talk to the company leadership, the investment fund leadership, and say, "Here it is. We're not going to. We don't. We don't identify any specific companies. We don't. You know, we're not into shaming here. It's just here it is. If this, this is, if you think it's acceptable, don't do anything. If you think that's going to be a successful strategy on a go-forward basis, obviously that will not be the outcome, <laughs> Francis. We know that." Um, what we know that is when we show them facts and data and when there's no place to hide, action starts. So we're on the now phase of PE and VC firm-backed uh, companies. Can we please start to, can you understand how bad this data is for Black, Latinx, unbelievably bad when you see it, and then females, bad, but, but not as bad as, as Black and Latinx. And that's going to be coming out, like I said, in the next couple of days and and our expectation is that that the pressure from society the pressure from um knowing that this is not a good place to be the pressure um from the 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 support that you get in being public with others that you're not the worst person out there that, that will start to accelerate change and movement in this area
1: so we all know the the power of the personal narrative personal experience and you're on the board of numerous organizations including Taneo and Uber and, and others. Um, tell us about your strategy when you talk to these companies you're already involved with.
0: Yeah, it's, um, the good news is that most of the companies, all of the companies that I'm involved with, um, I engage them with full transparency about things that are interesting to me. I'm not interested. I'm definitely interested in their company, their business model, their, their shareholder base, their offerings, et cetera but they also take me on the board with knowledge that I am really interested in education, for example, very, very interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So the conversations are interesting and not surprising, they're, and they're, they're relatively easy. So all of the, que- you know, we go through our normal business reviews, we'll go through a succession planning session, whatever, uh, a vendor review session, and my, re- my questions are, are pretty standard. Can I see the diversity numbers? What are the targets in this area? Do you have targets? What are our plans going forward? If you said that you're going to do A last year when we went through our succession planning reviews, and it's now this year and you didn't do A, first of all, did you do it? And if you didn't do it, what are your plans for improvement? If you do, if you did do it, what are your plans for the future? So when they get Ursula, they don't only get a business person who understands how global complex organizations run, they also get a person who understands that um, there's more to it than just the p and l and the balance sheet, that there's a huge amount of other responsibilities that we have as corporations. The good news is that I'm still wanted on board, so at least the companies are saying <laughs> that's, not, that's not a bad thing. It's not too distracting. and i'm finding I'm finding the conversations to be unbelievably. Um, receptive they're receiving them very well so I'm pleased about some of the progress particularly on the boards um, that I'm involved with.
1: We should certainly see companies be strengthened by this sort of diversity Um, so they should be grateful for it but but you mentioned earlier greater progress among um, for women greater gender progress than uh, ethnic and racial progress tell us what the different challenges are in addressing those two different things.
0: I think one of them is sheer numbers. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with the, just the facts. It's it, you know, half the population in the world, more than half the population in the world is, are, are female. And so therefore there is a number um, momentum that you get. There are a few more of them than there are African-American or Latinx um, prepared for, for business, that's one. But it turns out that that's not the most important difference. What I see, and this is, this is not scientifically proven at all, Francis. I've, I've never done any study. But here's my hypothesis, and I probably get into a little bit of trouble on this. <laughs> um, white women, who's, who are generally the beneficiaries of, of some of the diversity, because it's definitely not Latinx women, and it's definitely not Black women. It is a white woman phenomenon right now. By the way, I say, good for them. <laughs> and, good, and they having them there will help. Help everybody else as well, but white women are more familiar and comfortable to the decision makers than any other f- type of female. Definitely more familiar and comfortable than black women or Latinx women or even Asian women. So there is a level of we know these people. They we socialize with these people on a regular basis. These people are our mothers, our child daughters, our you know our spouses, etc. And that level of familiarity and level of closeness, hanging out in the same places, you know, having the same background experiences, makes it easier to make a decision. We found out having nothing to do with boards. We found this out well before I even got involved with bar, boards. People hire people that are like them. People hire people that they are comfortable with. And so we have a, a huge mountain to climb, climb for black for white men, majority men to be comfortable with for let's say a black woman or even a black man so but the black men have a little bit <laughs> a little bit better position than a black woman for example or a latinx woman or or a latinx man so i think familiarity is a big thing numbers familiarity is a is second thing and then quite honestly the international pressure and the state pressure um the international pressure in in particular is a gender pressure. It is actually, it excludes, it doesn't have that additional, please go through this additional sieve or sifting process and give me women of color. It is, and, and in Europe, as you know, the, the entire counting mechanisms, you know, what what are legally called X or Y or Z type of people is very, very difficult. And as the world gets smaller uh, it, or or more open, A lot of the women candidates come from outside of the United States and they come in a decidedly white way. Um, This is not necessarily a horrible thing. So I do want to make sure that I'm clear. I don't want women to slow down. This is not about we need less women, white women on boards. No, we just need more black, brown people on boards. We don't need less women on boards. We need more other people on boards as well.
1: I'd like to take you to another issue of corporate responsibility and voter suppression. You signed a letter, and I think um, the CEO of Muck uh, made a stand here saying um, African-American business leaders could not stand be bystanders in these key issues of voter suppression. What do you see the specific responsibilities of African-American business leaders are in this world?
0: So I'm going to first speak about the specific responsibility of business leaders. Hmm. Because mm-hmm. the responsibility of African American businesses will become obvious in a minute, we are we are in a country called the United States of America that we have laws. We have laws. The laws say that every citizen, meaning the right qualifications, meaning that they are a citizen, <laughs> they've met, uh, they've registered to vote, whatever it is, that they can vote, and. W- And that and it's a system that we should be proud of having, meaning we should enable as many people who can vote to vote. What we're seeing, what we saw and what we're seeing, not only in Georgia, but in a frightening way in 40, what is it, 48, 47 or 48 states So 47 other states is a decidedly, you know, strategic move to limit certain types of people or people in certain types of communities to make it more difficult for them to vote. This is not a black person's problem. This is an American problem. This is an American problem, it belongs to all of us. And the right to vote belongs to all of us. To make it difficult, to make it challenging, to put fear, particularly with laws, to put legal fear in people's minds, To have them literally not want to vote, not take the risk, take the risk. It doesn't sound like America to me. It sounds like <laughs> I used to read about these type of countries when we were growing up. We're a country that does exactly the opposite. So we know now that this is no longer um, an a accident. This is a concerted effort by certain people to limit access to people's rights to express their opinion at the voting booth, and that's just not proper. All CEOs should be in uproar about this. And what we found was that there were very few in uproar. So the 72 African American business leaders said, you know, if nothing else, we have to say something because literally we are them. We are these people who are trying to be suppressed. We are, the, we are them in our younger lives, in our poorer lives. We are, in, we are our family members who don't, who, you know, we, we have a platform and a bully pulpit. I can, if somebody tries to suppress my vote or do something, I literally get news, right? You'll talk to me. Most people don't have that. So it is our responsibility for sure as African-American business leaders to stand up. But I don't want this to become an African-American issue. This is not about that. It's about the right to vote for all Americans, black, white, rich, poor, Native American, Hispanic, it doesn't matter. And business leaders across the board have to stand up and say that in a country like ours, we cannot allow, we cannot allow unfair, disparate treatment based on color, economic standard, et cetera. And this is the most basic right that we have. This is not about... You know, meritocracy, nothing. You get this right when you are a born citizen or an acquired citizen of this country.
1: We're running short of time, but I really do want to bring in a couple of uh, audience questions for you because we've had many, many people who've, who've written in. The first one comes from Douglas McFerrin from California. And he writes, how do you deal with the resentment senior staff may feel that a concern with social justice might detract from their company's profitability because of possible backlash?
0: Yeah, I, this is something I get asked a lot um, about. That I get asked a lot about. And here's, what I, here's what I say. We are not, as a company, we have humans who work in it, right? So we are citizens of the countries and of the world that we live in to believe that we can operate an enterprise that is core to this world that we live in and have um, focus only on a narrow aspect of earning earning, cash, getting profit and having a high revenue number or good market cap or cash is I think a thing of the past. We learned this first with the environmental movement, right? It It took a long time for companies to be goaded into understanding that you just can't trash the place. If you trash the place, we, we all suffer. That's very clear now. I don't think there are a lot of companies who are going to sit and argue about whether or not we should have standards for emission, even if the governments don't support it. Companies now say, I get it. I get it. We have to figure out a way to waste significantly less. We have to figure out a way to to rejuvenate significantly more, et cetera. The same Uh, drive for a better world, the responsibility that we have to create a better world from a sustainability standpoint, we have the same responsibilities in human sustainability. People actually being able to contribute to the broadest of their capabilities that more people actually can contribute, not only this group or that group. So as citizens of the countries and the world that we live in, absolutely, it's our responsibility to do so. I think our customers have told us that. The world speaks to us, every. the earth speaks to us every day and says, you, uh, you can no longer do this. We can no longer operate the business the way it was. So if people are going to scream and say, you're distracting, I say, you know, I hate to say it this way, but invest in another company or work in another company, because my goal is to have a great Uber, a great ExxonMobil, a great uh, whatever, you know, Hair.com. all of the companies I'm involved in that great is the broadest definition of great. It's not just profitable. doesn't just generate a whole lot of cash. doesn't make executives proud and et cetera. It is also responsible, the broadest set of responsibility possible. The two are, they are symbiotic to the maximum. They're, they're 100% overlap. Sorry.
1: <laughs> well, Ursula Burns, thank you so much. I really, I feel as if we could talk all afternoon and wish we'd had more time for that. But thank you very much for joining us another time on Washington Post Live.
0: Thank you so much, Francis.
1: And this afternoon at two o'clock, my colleague David Ignatius will be back with my other colleague, the wonderful reporter Carol Lennig, to talk about her terrific new book zero fail about her decade of reporting on the, on the secret service. So don't miss that. You can sign up at WashingtonPostLive.com. Just check on other events and register for them. I'm Frances Steed Sellers, and thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.